Uh, I made a chart for us based on our conversation last week about um, the continuity and discontinuity of different theological systems, right? Just some light reading for today. Can you guys see that okay? A little bit bigger? Bigger. Zionism. The Hebrew Israelites. <laughs> so the spectrum of covenantal continuity is what I call this chart. I just kind of wanted to call it. you got to call it something. You know, they tell you call it something or someone else will call it something. So that's what I kind of decided to call it. So that's kind of what I was attempting to write on the board. Uh, I modified it a little bit, um, and the person who did this was Jeffrey Johnson in his Covenant Theology book, um, Biblical and Covenant Theology, um, which is a good book on some points, you know. But this chart is at right at the beginning of the book, and it's really good. It just kind of shows you kind of where we're at and where we're, where we're hanging out. Oh, yeah, I'll take that. Thank you very much. Uh, here we are in bold, right? Baptist covenant theology. We are Baptists. We do uh, covenant theology is kind of where I'm at. So uh, that's kind of where we would be at. Any questions about the chart? Um, I guess before I just not that the not that the not that the whole lesson will be on this or anything, but since I have it up, yeah. What's that? I did. Uh, no, I just think that that's, um, yeah, that's just better, I guess, you know, discontinuity, continuity. Uh, no, 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 no. You get the point. I mean, discontinuity and continuity, which is really ironic, and this chart doesn't explain everything, because you see where dispensationalism is, then you see where Zionism is, see that, right? Opposite sides of the spectrum, right? But they actually have things in common. You know, in my opinion, right? They have a very Jewish-centric interpretation of the Bible. You know, it's like uh, my old pastor used to say, dispensational Chuck Smith. You know, he would say, if you want to understand the Bible, look at the Jew. So to him, the key to Scripture was the Jewish people. You know what I mean? We would say the key to Scripture is what? Christ. You know what I mean? Um, He would be the center of all things. Just like the Bible says, you know, and Paul says that God is going to you know, sum up all things in Christ. You know, he's kind of the heart and soul of it all. Any other questions about the chart? Anything you need defined or you want to get into? Did you have a... Well, Zionism would just be like a total continuity of the Jewish faith, you know, like believing still in basically the old covenant, you know, administration. That would fall in there, definitely. That would definitely be kind of part of that. But what's interesting about Messianic Judaism... Or, or, or messi- uh, messianic uh, Christianity is that it's typically more dispensational, you know what I mean? But but unlike dispensationalism, messianic congregations they definitely believe in a, a, a continuing on with feasts and you know observance of the Jewish Sabbath and you know um, you know all of those things, you know, taking the Passover, all of that stuff. And uh, I used to have a friend who was really wrapped up in that. And they, they start you out by just talking about, like, these things help us to just get a better appreciation, right, for the faith, the Jewish faith, and where we came from and stuff like that. And, and it kind of comes across like historical lessons at first, but, but, but by the end of the, you know, by the end of the uh, indoctrination process, if you would, you know, they don't even want you to use the word Jesus. You know, you have to address Jesus by his Jewish name, Yeshua. So everyone's walking around the church speaking or referring to Yeshua only, you know, and they really kind of frown on calling him Jesus, you know, which is kind of preposterous, right? 
And why don't they call him Yesu? I mean, that's how that's what Paul referred to him as in the Greek New Testament. So, you know what I mean? It's kind of a it's kind of a frivolous point, you know what I mean? But things like that that messianic theology kind of gets into. Uh, yeah, anything else? Presbyterian covenant theology is a little bit further along on the, you know, the continuity point, right? Of course, dispensationalism would say that old covenant is old covenant and really in the new covenant we really have no use for the Old Covenant other than to go to the Old Covenant for some practical lessons on, you know, morality or examples that we can find. Um, but the Old Covenant is a Jewish book. Um, uh, it wouldn't be a Christian book as much as it is really thought about as a Jewish book. I mean, even MacArthur, when he was preaching Isaiah 53 a few years back, I was at the conference, and he sat there and he was talking about the, you know, talking about the, the servant of the Lord, the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, talking about how, you know, he will justify the many and all of this stuff. And he, he said, what an incredible promise for future Israel. You know, and I thought, what? So Isaiah 53 is not for me? <laughs> you know, like, wow. You know, so that's telling of that's the kind of interpretive grid that you have as a dispensationalist. You know, you see everything primarily through the Jewish lens, you know, um, which, you know. Let me know if you need me to throw that back up there again, but uh, let's see here. I'm supposed to... Yeah? I'm curious, is there a a way to kind of show the overlap between Baptist covenant theology and even dispensationalism and new covenant theology? I would assume assume that uh, given that you put Baptist covenant theology in the middle, there's overlap in both directions for what we owe to versus what they would accept. Sure, definitely. Dispensationalists are Baptists. You know, they're not Presbyterian. So on that point, we would agree. We might agree for different reasons. You know what I mean? Like um, dispensationalists would agree that we don't baptize infants, but that would be that would be based m- mainly on like a scientific approach to Scripture, which is just the data does not show any infants being baptized. Period. That was kind of MacArthur's whole argument when he debated R.C. Sproul on infant baptism. I don't know if any of y'all saw that debate or listened to it or whatever, but... Well, I mean, you know, MacArthur's like a scripture machine, you know, so he's just like, bam, 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 you know, verse after verse after verse after verse, which that's not even the covenantal argument is who can have the more verses, you know what I mean? It's more who can make the most powerful, convincing, consistent theological argument. And even from a Presbyterian perspective, I don't think R.C. Sproul did a very good job in that debate, you know what I mean? I don't want to say that I could have done better, but because <laughs> I'm not even Presbyterian, but I just don't like. I think other Presbyterians would have done a much more, you know, thorough job of explaining the the, the position. But uh, so so you know, dispensationalists would not argue from a covenantal argument. They would just argue from the lack of the presence of infant baptism in the New Testament. They would just say, "See, if you look in the New Testament, there's nobody being bapt- no infants being baptized. Period. Case closed. Let's move on." Whereas Reformed uh, 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 Baptistic covenant theology, what they would say is, no, it's a covenantal argument. It's a misunderstanding of the arg- of the covenant with Abraham and how that the sign given to the infants in the old covenant does not carry over to the new covenant, and here's why. You know, so that's kind of a little bit of a different reason. So any other questions? I mean, I took the chart down, but... 
Let's pray, and then we'll get into this study here, okay? Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you for uh, just giving us the opportunity to come together to study your word, to look at what Scripture has to say regarding all these important issues uh, of the covenantal nature of Scripture, and we just pray that you would give us, grant us clarity and give us understanding, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we talked about a few uh, different things already just in terms of who are the parties involved in the covenant of grace, uh, uh, from the parties uh, to, uh, to the mediator, right? Christ is a mediator, and the reason why that's important is because, um, make sure this thing is on, because in the covenant of works, there is no mediator, but in the covenant of grace, there certainly is. Right? There is one who, who goes between God and man. That is the seed of the woman that accomplishes our redemption. And then we have to talk about what is the condition of the covenant of grace. So like if the condition of the covenant of works is what? What is the... Con- That's right. It's conditional predicated on obedience, right? But so this is, you know... Uh, let's see here, covenant of works, um, right? And the condition is obey, and then covenant of grace, oops, is what's the condition of the covenant of grace? It's unconditional. Unconditional, I would agree with you, it's unconditional in the sense that we don't have to obey in order to benefit from the covenant of grace, Right? What is it? That's right. The condition is now faith. So now you have sort of a faith versus works, which is really amazing if you think about it, that this early on, Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, that's the covenant of works. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that's the covenant of grace. And already you have, in a sense, the dichotomy between the law and and the gospel, and and this is important because law comes first before the gospel, right? First, it's obey, and you'll be blessed, and because we blew it in Adam, we failed, right? Now comes the necessity for the grace of God, the necessity for the gospel, the good news. Now we need good news, right, to uh, to deliver us from the fall. And so all the way back, I mean, what is the book of Romans all about? Well, the book of Romans is all about the distinction between the law and the gospel. Well, that distinction, law and gospel, is introduced all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 through 3, you know, which is kind of amazing, right? All the way from back there, God has already sort of hardwired the Bible in a law and gospel way. Any questions about that? Anything? But yes, that's the condition, is faith. Right? Faith in the promise. So let's turn quickly again to Genesis chapter 3, a chapter that we can't seem to ever get out of, which is okay, because guess what? When you go by a real thick book on theology, especially like on covenant theology, guess what chapter you'll be in a lot? Genesis chapter 3. <laughs> so, you know, we're in good company with the, all the heavy-hitting theologians. Okay, but there you see uh, in verse 15 again, What's going on here? And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And then remember, we talked about how there's, we go from a general promise, in a sense, to a more specific promise, right? He says, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, what's interesting about that is that up to that point, 
the seed is to be interpreted more along the corporate line, right? That these are her descendants, and that her descendants will be in opposition to the descendants of the devil, of, of the serpent, which, who are the descendants of the serpent? Well, the unrighteous, ultimately. The, that's why the, even the Psalms is broken up in, in, in terms of the righteous and the wicked, I mean, the whole book of Psalms is really a contrast between the righteous and the wicked, which represent two different ways of life, right? And so, like, think about, like, Jesus, when he was combating the Pharisees, it didn't take him long to identify them as the, the serpent's seed, right? I think it's in uh, John, where's that at? John chapter, John chapter 8, is it 844? I think it is 8, or 644. I don't know, somebody looked that up. Yeah, 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 yeah. He says you always do what your father, you know, you have your father the devil because you always do what he did. You know what I mean? Um, And so right there, the person who is antichrist, who does not submit to the lordship of Christ, is identified as part as the serpent's seed. You know, it's amazing, you know? Yeah. Would that also be uh, with the sons of disobedience? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're called by a, a whole host of names, right? Jeremiah calls them accursed children. You know, they're the wicked, the sons of disobedience, children of wrath, children of the devil, you know. Um, um, yeah, any questions about that? Uh, but yeah, just this whole concept of faith being the condition, um, this is really important. And then we looked at different lines of evidence that we that we see, because did you guys find the condition in verse 15? Anyone? Where's the... Condition in verse 15 of Genesis 3.15. Huh? You don't see one? Come on, Chris, what's wrong with you? It's right there, man, come on. (laughs) Yeah, I would agree, it's not right there, right? Where does it say, and you must believe this, you see? And so what we would say is that when God makes a promise, the only thing that can be met with God's promises is faith or trust. So if God promises something, the only way to have access to the promise of God is by faith, right? Um, and, and, and you see that. Remember, we gave different kind of lines of evidence, and I have some arguments up here. You know, um, we talked about these last week a little bit, but what does it say here? It seems on several accounts that Adam and Eve were justified by this promise. First, Adam named his wife in accordance to what God, had, uh, God said would happen. She would be the mother of the coming seed and thus the mother of all living, 320. Second, God graciously made um, uh, permanent garments for the couple through some sort of animal sacrifice, p- possibly a lamb. They received, the tr- they received and trusted in God's provision of, uh, for their nakedness. That's verse 21. Third, instead of removing the tree of life, God removes the couple from the garden so that they would not remain in a fallen state forever. Uh, fourth, upon r- arrival of their first child, it seems as if, as if Eve lived in light of God's promise of a special seed in whom they must trust. So that's why, look at verse four, or chapter 4, verse 1 in Genesis. says, Now the man had relations with his wife. She conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And, uh, of course, we've pointed this out before, but the Hebrew is a little ambiguous there, the Hebrew grammar it could literally be rendered, I have gotten a man-child, the Lord. Uh, and so many, many people interact with that view because it's very possible <laughs> that you can translate the Hebrew that way. I think that's a little bit overdeveloped, but I think the reason why Moses records this 
and why God inspires this section of what how Eve responded to the fact that she got a child, right? Isn't it amazing? These little details all mean something. And her response to the fact that she conceived and bore a child, I think is directly connected with the promise that she thought this somehow could be, you know, the promise. Um, and isn't there, if, let's turn to chapter, oh boy, uh, turn to chapter, Let's see here. Verse chapter five, verse twenty-eight. Already, even from the most primitive period in uh, uh, redemptive history, you already have this sort of anticipation, this sort of almost like a faith in a descendant. You see that Genesis chapter five, verse twenty-eight. Lamech lived one hundred eighty-two years and became the father of a son. Now it says he called his name Noah saying, this one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Interesting. So it's almost like from this point, even this early, they were looking for a particular descendant who would reverse the curse and give us rest. Interesting, right? Uh, It's phenomenal because it just says that, but it doesn't elaborate on like any more than that. It's because things are kind of trickling out, you know, um, uh, the faith, uh, you know, once for all delivered unto the saints is little by little progressively being revealed until we arrive at chapter 12 with Abraham. It's, it's, you know, it's like I said last time, you know, you have this time period going across, you know, and you have all of these centuries going by, you guys, all the way to chapter 12, you know, of, of Genesis, you know, you have a thousand years of history. And then you get to chapter 12, and guess what the author does? He stops. He slows down, and he highlights, he magnifies this time period right here. He sort of zooms in telescopically into that time period because now we've arrived at a very, very significant point in redemptive history where that initial promise, right, of Genesis 3.15, that initial promise is going to be further explained in how God operates with Abraham. And we know that God operates with Abraham on the basis of faith, correct? Um, Let's see here. Let me read what Wayne Grudem has to say. Wayne Grudem, he made the cut. There he is. I, I thought Wayne Grudem was good because he has a very simple, like, if you're totally confused about covenant theology, just pick up Wayne Grudem. He's got a very small chapter in there on the covenants between God and man. It's very brief. Uh, it's not very intricate. You know what I mean? Like anyone can comprehend what Grudem is writing there. And I think he's right. I think it's good. And he went to Westminster and rejected Presbyterian covenant theology. God bless him. <laughs> he's Baptist, you know. Um, He's got some other issues, I understand, but, but he, on this issue, he's, he's good. He's clear. He says, This requirement of faith in the redemptive work of the Messiah was also the condition of obtaining the blessings of the covenant in the Old Testament. As Paul clearly demonstrates through the examples of Abraham and David, in other words, what he's saying is that in Abraham and David, the condition is the same, faith, right? They, like other Old Testament believers, were saved by looking forward to the work of the Messiah who was to come and putting faith in him. So, Romans 
you know, the centrality of faith in the book of Romans, right? Romans chapter 1, verse 17. For, it is the, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Um, and then, let's turn there, Romans chapter 4, because I have the whole chapter in here. Romans chapter 4. Okay. Romans chapter 4. It helps us to understand that what is going on in the book of Romans is not just forensic language. What do I mean by forensic language? Huh? Legal language, right? And so we think immediately of the language of the court. And, um, and that's right. Uh, we're talking about the doctrine of justification. What does the word justification mean? What's that? To declare righteous. That's right. Something like that, right? To, um, yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> the w- what's interesting is that the word in Greek, dikaiosune um, or dikaiao, all of these different verbs even that Paul uses, the word is actually righteous uh, from dikaiosune. That is the noun, righteous, right? And then the word to justify is the same root word, but in verb form, dikaiao, which means you can't say the word righteous in a verb, so it'd be kind of like righteousifying or something like that, right? <laughs> That's right. But we, we would, that would be improper use of English. But think of it in Greek. When you're using the word, right, justify, the, the word is actually righteous. It's, it's righteousing someone. So we can't see it from an English standpoint, but they saw it in Greek that the concept of justification means God is somehow making you righteous or declaring you righteous. You know, we want to be careful with the word make you righteous versus declare you righteous, right? Because making you righteous almost means as if there's some sort of ontological change in your being. You see what I'm saying? And you understand this from the standpoint of declaring you guilty, Right? Declaring you guilty, do you inherently become guilty? Right? Or wicked? Right? No, no, no. You, you're, you're, you know, you're, uh, that's a matter of your nature, right? So, so, so it's not just because, okay, there, you're declared righteous in the sight of God. That does not mean that you are instantly transformed into a perfect righteous person. (laughs) Right? That's why the reformers came up with the slogan, um, uh, simultaneously justified and sinner, right? Or saint and sinner, right? Because that's what justification is about. It's not that... So this is where the Roman Catholic doctrine is totally off on justification. The Roman Catholic doctrine of justification does mean that you are morally being transformed into a more and more righteous person progressively. There's an internal change going on, right? And we say, no, 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 this is talking about a transfer of state. You're going from guilty to righteous, right, in a legal sense. But what I want to point out with, you know, um, with Romans is, as Grudem points out, is that it helps us to see that it's not just legal language. It's not just that God is in the courtroom, the tribunal of heaven, but it's covenant language, it's, it's, it's rooted in the covenant of grace. 
And this is why it must be according to faith. You see? Um, yeah. Clear as mud, right? Um, any questions or comments or anything? Brian, you're trying to read? I'm making it difficult for you? Let me read it. The con- it says, although the condition of the... Co- it says, I say... <laughs> Although the condition of the covenant of grace is faith in the promise, it does not uh, at all mean, typo, that the covenant is antinomian. Indeed, immediately after the covenant oath is given, Adam and Eve are still commanded to obey. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 20. They still have to point, uh, they still have to till the ground and, and all of that, right? Bavink points out that the covenant of grace is received in the walk according to God's law, it's proof and seal. In other words, it was a real awkward way that he put it, but what he's saying is that basically the covenant of grace is not teaching antinomianism. It's not that you are that you are justified and saved by grace and that nothing was expected of the man and the woman, right? No, quite to the contrary. Because you had faith in the promise, you were expected to live in a certain way. Um, yeah, yes, sir. Mm-hmm. In Job 19, um, he says, For I know my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Mm. And so, you know, you're talking about expecting the way that they live. He, he's been under assault, mm. family wise, but to his body. Mm. And even then, he's relying in a sense on the promise of a coming Redeemer that he knows his Redeemer lives. Yeah. Right. You have somebody like Job who is living that, right? Already trusting in that and living that and, and being and walking in righteousness in light of his faith in that. Right? That's exactly right. Um Yeah. The covenant of grace is rooted um rooted as it is in saving faith, produces a life of obedience which justifies our justification. And there I'm referring to James chapter two, verse fourteen, which says, you know, faith without works is dead. Right, I mean that's that's all that's being said. What what evidence do we have, even in Genesis, that that uh, that that is the case? Well, I already gave you one. You know, for example, um, they were commanded to obey the command to still to, to till the ground and to do all of that. What else is maybe evidence that for Adam and Eve, faith in the promise did not mean the loss of religious life? Right? Yes, sir. The offerings that uh, Cain and Abel gave showed that Adam had taught them that. That's exactly where I, what I was thinking. Yeah. Were you looking at my notes earlier? No. I, I like the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's... Yeah. Oh, gee. Yeah, that's right. Um, yes. Um, that's exactly right, is where did Cain and Abel learn how to sacrifice unto the Lord, right? So definitely, and, and a, where is a sacrifice done, right, but on an altar, so we really misunderstand. We kind of underestimate Adam and Eve. I think you know we think that they they're so primitive that they couldn't possibly have developed a a complex system of walking with God. I think they did. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I I think it's like foreshadowing the sacrificial system, you know, the whole concept of offerings to the Lord that are pleasing to him. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's all worship to the Lord. So, um, yeah, some of the stuff I said in here is good. Some of it you can just do away with it, but some of it's good in here. Um, let, let me just read some of this and tell me what you think. You know, in Genesis 3.15, just like we said, you know, there's no explicit condition. No other response would be appropriate to God's promise, oath, and faith in that promise. Just as Genesis 3.15 is promising a great redeemed fecundity. You guys know what that word means, right? I don't either. Let me look it up. <laughs> fecundity just means like a lot of posterity, a lot of uh, children, a, a, a lot of descendants, right? A covenant community joined to the seed of the woman who conquers. So too, this posterity language is substantially present in the promise to Abraham. Oh, right? So there you go. I mean, you know, just like Adam and Eve is promised a seed, generally, a, you know, a community, the same thing reemerges in when the, when the covenant of grace, we would say, sort of the principle at least, reemerges in Abraham. The same thing is promised there, a seed, a fecundity, a great posterity, right? The, the community of faith. Abraham forms an indispensable link for the covenant of grace in biblical theology since the Abrahamic covenant uniquely reveals the covenant of grace in the Old Testament. Um, you want to talk about that? That's kind of a big statement right there. You know, um, again, you know, like dispensationalists, that's why they're way over, they're way over on that chart. They're way over there because we just want to put them way over there sometimes because they don't agree with this. <laughs> you know, what they would say is, no, there's no covenant of grace operating in the Abrahamic covenant. That's just all wrong. You know, there's nothing there. But the problem is, is that Genesis is just not structured like that. Genesis is very much structured uh, in such a way that we are supposed to go from the righteous descendants of Adam and Eve, and we're supposed to see this struggle in the seed theology, the evil seed of the serpent represented by people like Cain and Lamech, right, and others. And then you have, and then ultimately, I mean, Noah, you know what I mean? You see the seed of the serpent, you know, <laughs> it reaches an intolerable boiling point where God has to, you know, as a prelude to the final judgment, he has to bring forth cosmic judgment because the seed of the serpent gets so out of control, right, that God, in a sense, gives us a foreshadowing of what he will do in the end, right? Um, that's why I kind of laughed at the Noah's Ark thing that we went to, because the commercials, they're like, the adventure begins again, you know, I'm just like, adventure? <laughs> like for who <laughs> you know what I mean like, let me get in the boat first before you talk about an adventure you know what I mean <laughs> it wasn't a, you know, this wasn't Disneyland you know what I mean anyway God bless them I know what, you're, I know what they're doing but you know what I mean <laughs> just saying yeah yes sir hmm Correct. And so when we look at the covenant of grace that requires faith, not works. Correct. The fact that it was, you know, Paul talks about him being justified by faith. Yeah. Shows that it has to be by grace. Has to be. Look at look at Romans chapter four verse sixteen. Right. This is kind of where it was going to go, but Romans chapter four verse sixteen. And so, if God makes a gracious promise, and this is kind of reinforcing the idea that in Genesis three fifteen, because God gives a gracious promise, the only thing that can meet that gracious promise is faith. Look at uh, verse sixteen. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace. 
It's almost like for Paul, these two must go together, grace and faith. They have to, these two principles have to go together, right? Or else, like, you know, Brian says, grace would not be grace. So that the promise will be guaranteed, watch this, the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants. Wow, that's interesting, right? Going back to uh, uh, Abraham, not only those who are the law, i.e. Jewish, but also those who are the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So what, what, So this is why God brings it to the telescopically coming, zooming in, right, to one man, Abraham, because as I said somewhere already earlier, say he forms an, I said it right here, Abraham forms an indispensable link for the covenant of grace and biblical theology since Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, uniquely reveals the covenant of grace in the Old Testament. You see, yes, sir. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And that's why in verse 16 it says, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants. What is the promise? Well, the promise is the promise of of redemption, the the promise of salvation, the promise of justification, which is by the Spirit. And so it's kind of complex, but what is happening in Genesis chapter 3 is that God, on the basis of a gracious promise, is promising the Spirit, right? That Adam and Eve will one day go to the realm of the Spirit and not just the flesh, right? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We've looked at this before. This is what man was created to. When we talk about, and we're going to get to this in a second, but as we talk about the promise of the covenant of grace, um, we'll, we'll see that. But in Genesis, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, remember we saw this already. The need, the fact that there is a physical body, that in and of itself tells us and prepares us for the fact that there also will be a spiritual body. Verse 45. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. And that's going back to Genesis chapter 2, I think it's, or chapter 2, verse 7. He says, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Okay? Um, Yeah. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. So it's almost like, what the first Adam failed to do is to dispense the Spirit to his people. That's what Christ did. He became a life-giving Spirit, which means he was going to give the Spirit of God to his people. Uh, some people would, would argue this, because when I say Jesus became a life-giving Spirit, what comes to your mind? Do you think of Jesus in a... In a in, are you mainly thinking Jesus in his disembodied form, right? When it says he became a life-giving pneuma, spirit, like what comes to our mind? You know what I'm saying? Like, let's, let's talk about that. Because <laughs> a man is like, what? <laughs> right? What's that? Okay, but think about it. This is saying something about him. So Jesus did not become regenerate. 
The phrase. Look at the phrase in verse 45. The last Adam, who's that? He became a life-giving spirit. The problem is, is that the problem is, is that this, this is something in the identity of Jesus, right? Because just like it's the identity of Adam, he became a life, a living soul, right? So this is something that is predicating the nature of Adam one and Adam two. So how is Jesus the Spirit? That's the question we're asking, you know. Well, that's what it says, right? Yeah, the last Adam, yeah, a life-giving spirit. So you, you know he's making a, the symmetry is perfect. The, the first Adam became a living soul, but the last Adam, what? Became a life-giving spirit. That translation is really not under question. You know what I'm saying? The question is, is what does it mean for Jesus to be a life-giving pneuma? Yes, sir. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just want us to grapple with this, right? So that when we hear the Bible calling Jesus the Spirit, we have a category for it. He does it again. He actually already did it. No, he's going to do it again. I'm sorry. Chapter Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, 17 and 18. Again, Jesus is identified as the Spirit of the Lord. What? <laughs> right? Is this modalism? Absolutely not. This is what theologians call functional unity between the Spirit and Christ. That Christ assumed the Spirit to such a degree that he became one with the Spirit, and he dispenses the Spirit to his people. Uh, So it's the difference between an ontological unity, which is not what the Bible's saying, versus a functional unity. It's kind of like when Jesus said, you know, you know, Philip, show us the Father and it will suffice. And Jesus says what? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Is he claiming to be the Father? No. But there is such a functional unity between Father and Son that to behold the Son is to behold the Father. And, to, and, for, and for Jesus to become a life giver is for him to operate as the Spirit of God in our lives. Uh, something like that. Yes, sir. We need to take numbers, you know, like little numbers. Put it up on the screen, you know. He speaks about yeah. sending the Spirit. Yep. It also, is to, it also is saying that the Spirit is one like him. Uh, and that's what makes Certainly. Sense. That's what I think of when it says the last time he came to life, he gave the Spirit in him, him giving basically himself. Yeah. Sending the Spirit. That's right. So he brings us to... Uh, you know, as as Jesus, you know, becomes this life-giving spirit, he brings us to our intended end, right? Uh, I'll answer these questions. Let, let, let's just read on because I think it helps us understand. He says, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. I don't like that translation, earthy. I like earthly. I don't walk around saying earthy, do you? It's so earthy, dude. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> 
I don't know why they went. What does the ESV say? Does ESV say earthy? Can't. Oh, dust, that's right. Dust is even cooler. I, I don't know. The second man is from heaven, as is the earthy. <laughs> so also are those of the earthy. See what I mean? <laughs> so, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Wow. See what's going on there? Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Wow. So like what he's saying is that as Jesus accomplishes our redemption, represents us, becomes our mediator, and imparts life to us, what he's doing is he's transferring us from one realm to the next. He's transferring us out of the earthly realm and into the heavenly realm. Notice that that's where he ends, right? He goes from spirit to heaven. So that when a person partakes spiritually of Christ, when you are united with Christ spiritually, there's a mystical union with Christ, you have undergone a realm transfer. We are citizens of heaven. You are seated in heaven, right, with him. So um, what it means is that we now go, we belong to a higher order now. I mean, what will that do for your self-esteem? You know what I mean? Anyway, questions. Any other questions? It's, these are the, some of the hardest passages, by the way, to interpret in Paul. I mean, this is really tough. I mean, look at look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You, you think that's tough. I mean, talk about a way to clear out a church, right? No church growth methods here. Look at verse 17. No, 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 no. Verse At the end of verse 14, it says the veil is lifted in Christ, Right? But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, who is that? Christ. Says the veil is taken away because it's taken away in Christ. He's just saying the same thing over and over again. And he says, now the Lord, now which Lord is that? (laughs) See, exegetically, you have to find the antecedent, which is the last referenced Lord in the passage. It seems logically that he's still talking about Christ, okay? Um, It says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So that's a really tricky, tricky, tricky passage. And again, I would argue that what we're looking at here is another instance of the functional unity of the Spirit and Christ, where, where they are so functionally one that Christ, in a sense, can be called Spirit, Right. Um, yeah, that's my position. I don't know if it's right, but that's my position. Meaning there's a bunch of positions out there, and when you try to think mainly Trinitarian, right, which is like i got to defend the Trinity at all costs. <laughs> well, that presupposition, you bring that to the text, right, and all of a sudden you start kind of overlooking the obvious. Like, for example, who's the antecedent in the text? You know what I mean? Because you want so bad in your mind to separate the two. No, 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 there's the Lord Jesus, and then there's the Spirit. Never the twine shall meet, right? <laughs> but is that really the way that Paul structured his sentence? No, he did not. So you have to grapple with it. I think one of the best uh, uh, treatments of this uh, is uh, by uh, Gordon Fee, 
he has a really good treatment on this, and others do too. Um, people that have pointed this out, Reformed theologians like Gerhardus Voss, Richard Gaffin, uh, Lane Tipton, others that have pointed out this exact functional unity that Paul is talking about here. So it's not Pastor Emilio becoming a modalist you know, or something like that. Any other questions? Let's see, are we completely out of time again? Jeez. Yes, ma'am? right yeah and and more importantly like adam ultimately represents death right and christ ultimately represents life you know death in adam life in christ we know that because even earlier in the same context chapter 15 first <laughs> cha- uh, corinthians 15 verse 21 he just got done saying in adam all die in christ all will be made alive right so that's really the contrast that's right. Uh-huh. Second Corinthians. So that's why, like, even to strengthen the argument, right, in Second Corinthians chapter 3, where it says, you know, um, the Lord is the Spirit. And if you come to a functional position on this, functional unity position, then what you're asking is, where did Paul get the idea to do this? Or where? How, he doesn't even explain or elaborate on this. But he already talked to that. Uh, he already mentioned this in this first letter to the Corinthians, where he ref- where he speaks of Jesus being a life giving spirit. You see, so. So in the sense that you know, just talk, thinking through the eternal functional unity, it sounds so much like the EFS stuff is different. Than that, Yeah. Just trying to bring it out that this isn't possible unless he's both God and man. Of course. Yeah, but it has more to do with his ministry, right, and his mission. That when he came, that his mission was one of the Spirit, right? That, that, that when he came, he came to dispense his Spirit. Uh, that's the whole purpose of the Messiah's coming. So you have all these Old Testament passages about the Messiah and the fact that he will be endowed with the Spirit and the fact that he will give the Spirit, that he will bestow the Spirit, right? And then he says he breathes the Spirit on them. And then at Pentecost, he showers them with the Spirit, according to Joel. You know, so it's Jesus is coming with the ministry of the Spirit, right? In essence, as the perfect man, he is filled with the Spirit so yeah. much so that he cannot do anything apart from him. That's why Adam is the perfect parallel or type. 
because it shows us what Adam was intended to be. He was intended to be a life-giving spirit, right? He was intended to be so clothed with the spirit that he could dispense it to his people, right? But he failed, and he failed to give them eternal life um, and all of that. There's so much here. Where do we go? Nowhere. We close. <laughs> we can't even get to the promise. You know what I mean? We looked at this verse already, right? But we'll get to the promise next week because the promise is really big in terms of our eschatology. I won't let you look, Kato, because you're, you're looking ahead for next week. I'm going to keep you in suspense. But, but uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Let me read this last thing. The covenant of grace does not utilize faith. It demands it. In order for the benefits and privileges of the covenant to be applied to all God's elect seed in Christ, faith alone could be coupled with grace, uh, with the grace principle of the covenant, thereby securing the inheritance of God's people. Amen? Amen. Read the, uh, rewind the tape. I say tape, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Let's go to worship. <laughs>